0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book. The covering title of the series is Christian Fundamentals and we are now this evening considering the being and nature of God and this is the third study of this special series. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you read with us the 8th, chapter of the Gospel according to John. We mustn't linger over this 8th chapter of John, we have a very big subject before us, but I feel I must mention one feature. You will know that a great many advise us to leave out the first part of John 8, the woman taken in adultery, because in some manuscripts it has been omitted. But will you notice that in the first section, which is supposed to be omitted, the uh, question of stoning is brought very prominently forward. And when you get to the last verse of this chapter, then they took up stones to stone him. That's one item. Then you come back, and in verse 9, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. And that self-same word awaits us in verse 46, which of you convinceth me of sin. So it looks as though the very parallelism of the scripture is one of those indications that the passage must be retained. Otherwise, if you take it out, you have a lopsided structure and there is no reason for it. But we mustn't go any further except he speaks of himself as a man. And they looked at him and they said, Thou art not yet fifty years old? And hast thou seen Abraham? Well, he didn't say, of course, I could never have seen Abraham. Well, he says, seen Abraham? Abraham's only just a few minutes ago. Before Abraham was, I am. What sort of man is this, friends? Any ordinary man standing up in any ordinary congregation and saying such a thing would be put down as being a little bit screwy. Well, this was worse in their estimation because to make such a claim again was demanding that they should recognize equality with God and the only answer to that was stoning. It's a very solemn thought that the Gospel according to John presents you with two alternatives. In the presence of this Christ you will either be tempted to say he should be stoned for blasphemy or you'll be like the typical unbelieving Thomas at last you'll fall at his feet and give him the title that belongs to God only. There's no explanation offered as to why but the facts are just there to warn us. Go gently friends with regard to this man who says before Abraham was I am. We're dealing with this question of the nature of being of God and I confessed at the beginning that I know practically nothing about God. Of course that could be misunderstood but I believe God in his essence is so entirely beyond the limitations of time and space that unless he had condescended to limit himself we should never have heard him never have known him and it would have been utterly impossible for us ever to have approached him. The moment you say, in the beginning, you've got a limitation. God is not in the beginning. Beginning of what? Has he got a calendar that he tears off leaves? Does time matter to him? And where is God? It's no good pointing up to the sky because tomorrow morning you'll be pointing in the opposite direction. Where do you mean? What about the poor Australians? Are they all out of it when they point upwards to the sky? See, time and space belong to us. But no time and no space can have any relationship to God as God. If I would make a concession, but I'm hardly feel hardly I can yet, but I may possibly, just as an argument, I may make a concession that there are two occasions when God does actually enter into the Bible. And that is in the first verse of Genesis, and in 1 Corinthians 15, which is then come is the end, when God shall be all in all. But between those two, The only God we know is a self-limited God. You know, some people even talk as though the name Elohim, which is the word God in Genesis 1, is the name of God. But who went up and called him Elohim? Who gave him a Hebrew name in the vast eternity before the world was? Was he called Elohim or any other name? Don't you see? All these are labels to help us to come to some Very limited conclusion of the nature and being of God. I feel it's a great timidity on my part even to speak on the subject. And it will be with great reservation that I... before we take either attitude, for they're both associated with events results. Now, those of you who have retained this little uh, chart, which was distributed at the early meeting, uh, you will notice I've got rather a little... ...just to deal with this for a brief moment, because we're going to look to the third chapter of the book of Exodus where God reveals his name as I am. We'll go to that in a moment. Now, I am, spoken like that, hardly conveys a meaning to us. Because it's not possible for any one of us to say I am, that's my name. We are We are creatures of time, past, present and future all the time. So, this is a very crude illustration of a very vast problem. It doesn't settle it. It only perhaps gives us a start. You see I've drawn a table and on that table there's a book and there's a flask for water and there's a tachy On the left hand side of this table there's a spider crawling and when he gets to the top of the table and he says oh no you're entirely wrong. The book is first and the flask in the middle is second and the catchy case is third. But then the one who's sitting looking at the table, very much bigger than either ant or spider, always says, you're both wrong because they're all in front of me and there's neither first, second, nor third. Do you see? It's very, very crude, isn't it? We approach it like a spider or an ant. And we have to go from one event to another. But God is sitting so far back that he doesn't have to wait for time and space to accomplish events. We are told, known unto God are all things from the beginning. How he knows? We do not know we should be God himself if we did. But that is the reason why he speaks of himself in this peculiar way. I am. Well now we will turn, after that little illustration, to the book of Exodus, where this revelation is made to Moses. You remember that Moses has seen an extraordinary sight in the desert, The time has come for God to give him his new commission. He has spent as many years in the desert looking after sheep as he had spent at the court of Pharaoh. Oh, what a discipline he had to go through. And apparently the time is right. And he saw a burning bush and he drew near and he heard a voice telling him to take off his shoes for the place where on he stood was holy ground. And then he received this commission to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of Israel. And so in verse 13 it says, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? You see, that's a legitimate request, especially as you've been surrounded by gods and they've all got their names and they've passed right down to this present time in Egypt. What shall I call him? What name shall I say? And God said unto Moses, I am, that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me unto you. That's a baffling sort of statement, isn't it? It's explaining something which is inexplicable. It's giving a title which you say, Well, Lord, can you tell me a bit more what it means? I can imagine that's what happened. God told him the title, but he said, now I'll I'll expand it. I'll explain it a little bit more. And God said, moreover, this is in addition, you see, moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, it's no good going to them and saying, I am, because thou look as puzzled as you were, Moses. Say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. And here you have the introduction into the book of Exodus of the name Jehovah. Whenever you see in the authorised version the word Lord spelled out in large capital letters, that's an indication to you that the name Jehovah, this sacred name of God, has been used the expansion of the name says, this is my name, now our version says forever, and so we're apt to lean to the translation which has been suggested by more than one, and they put all through the Bible, the eternal. Well now, it's a very fine thought to think of God as eternal, but it's just the opposite meaning of the word Jehovah. First of all, the word here, forever, is the word age, and If you don't believe that, it's paralleled by the word generations. And the duplication of teaching in the scripture is often a way to discover its meaning. It repeats itself, you see, using another word. It's no good putting the generations as an equivalent to eternity. You wouldn't be able to read, this is my name for eternity, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Oh, this is my, this is my name for the age. This name is here for a purpose. It's the name of God limiting himself to become the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. What a limitation for God. You know, when we read in the scriptures, He's the God of the whole earth, they think, oh, what a great God He must be. But the God of the whole earth, they tell me, the astronomer, that if an angel was sent from glory to discover this earth and wasn't told just exactly where to look, he might search for eternity to find it and wouldn't see it. The God of the whole earth is a limitation for the God that we believe. We cannot begin to think. Solomon was struck with that, he said, But will God dwell in a temple made by hands? Why, the heavens? And the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. So let's have a little idea, friends, that the moment we read the Bible, we are reading of a self-limited God. And the name Jehovah is particularly associated with time, with the ages. And you'll discover when we look at it a stage further, uh, that instead of a a, a name remaining forever, its most glorious blessedness is that it gradually uses itself up and is finished. Now that comes as a shock to some people. The same as it might have been a shock even to John himself when he was in the heavenly Jerusalem because he had known a wonderful temple. John himself had entered into a wonderful temple that was built at Jerusalem. And when he came to the heavenly Jerusalem and he described the gates, why the gates, each one of them a single pearl and the street like crystal gold and you might have said, oh, but wait till I get to the temple and describe that. But you know what he said? I saw no temple. The glory of the heavenly Jerusalem is that he didn't want a temple. And believe me, priesthood and Levitical uh, ceremonies and sacrifices, they're only for a time and their glory is that they accomplished their work and they're never needed. You see, you don't need priests and altars When you're a family, reconciled absolutely with your father, that's all finished. Now the name Jehovah is God's name as the redeeming factor, because he has other names. The name you know him is rather the God of creation. The name Jehovah is the God of redemption. Now you may remember the way in which Psalm 19 splits itself into two. The heavens declare the glory of God. It speaks about creation. And then presently it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord. see? When it's dealing with man. It's the word God in Genesis 1. And the moment Adam is here, it's the Lord God. Same person. Or you read such a statement as this in the time of the flood. And the animals, they all went into the ark as God commanded and the Lord Shut him in. Same God. All it's over and over again mentioned like that. I think for brevity's sake, I'll stop speaking to you for a minute and read an extract from the writings of Dr. Duncan Weir on this very meaning of the word Jehovah. He says the Hebrew may say the Enohim, that is to say, the true God, in opposition to all false gods but he never says, The Jehovah, for Jehovah is the name of the true God, only. He says again and again, My God, but never My Jehovah. For when he says My God, he means Jehovah. Jehovah is My God, you see, that's its special meaning. He speaks of the God of Israel, but he never, never Jehovah of Israel, for there is no other Jehovah. He speaks of the living God, but never the living Jehovah, for he cannot conceive of Jehovah as other than living. Jehovah is evidently the God of redemption, under the old covenant, the God of Israel. The co-relative of Elohim is man, God in nature. Jehovah is God in grace. Elohim is the God of providence. Jehovah the God of promise and prophecy. Thus saith Jehovah are the words with which the prophet always introduces his message. He never says, Thus saith Elohim. Now they are the words of this man who's written on the subject, but he's put his finger on the fact that we've got to remember that this title of God has a distinctive meaning, and we do well to keep it in our mind. If any of you would like to see that again, you'll find it in the little book that we have, entitled, i better read the, because I forgot what I've written, The Form of Sound Words. But I'm not advertising our literature. What else? There's no strictly, no strictly verb to be in the Hebrew language. They speak the verb to be, but it's never written. What is written is the verb to become. And so, when we face this word Jehovah, a word of four letters, if we were very very intimately acquainted with the Hebrew language which I am not, you would immediately perceive that it was a composition of different parts of the verb to become. As though it said this, I will become whatever it is necessary for thee to become in order to bring this purpose to its glorious goal. And he who is called the Lord all through the New Testament, the Lord, is ultimately going to be acknowledged by every knee-bowing and every tongue-confessing that he is Jehovah, Lord. And then that son, who has brought the purpose to its issue, based upon his great sacrificial work, when all enemies are under his feet and the last enemy destroyed his death, then that son voluntarily submits to the father. Not that the father may be all in all, It doesn't say that. It says, we're back at the beginning now, that God, God, may be all in all, and now we're on the fringe of eternity, and no more said. So don't ask me about it, will you? For I don't know. All I can do is to tell you what comes within the limits of the beginning and the end. But after that, we wait. I trust well, now, in the New Testament, especially in the book of the Revelation, we have a hint <coughs> that this name is paraphrased. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, we read in verse 4 of these words. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So there you have the one who is called, the, the one who is called um, him which is, and was, and is to come, and one is the seven spirits, and one is Jesus Christ. Now shut the book, and you'll only half get the truth. If you look at the eighth verse, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Who is speaking now? Well, if you don't know, you'll find at the last chapter, it's the Saviour himself who says, I am the first and the last, I am Alpha and Omega. Would you say, Do you mean to tell me that this Saviour takes the very title that belongs to God himself? Well, he doesn't take it, it belongs to him. But you say, how can, oh, don't ask me how it's possible for these things to be distributed like that. I'm only telling you that you must be watchful. Because you see, one person can fix his attention on verse 4 and prove one thing. Another to fix his attention on verse 8 and prove the opposite. Well, we don't want to divide ourselves up into two camps, do we? We want both. Even though taking the both creates a certain amount of problem. Now, when you look at the next occurrence of this title, 11 and 17. You see, in this this way of John question, it is practically giving you the name Jehovah, the God of all time, past, present, and future. He who was, and is, and is to come. Now, in chapter eleven seventeen, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. And did you notice that he was called the Almighty in verse 8? And do you know that magnificent statement that comes in this book of the Revelation? The Lord God Omnipotent reigneth. That's Christ. That's not the invisible God being spoken about. Christ is the Lord God Omnipotent who reigns. His kingdom is come. His coronation is there. And so we have here in this verse 17, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and hast reigned. Now, if you follow the the, uh, edited text, we discover that there's every reason to believe that the last part of this title is omitted. And what it actually reads is, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast. But why don't they say, and art to come? Why? Well, because the, me- the name has a meaning. If he's there already, why do you say an ark to come? You see, I said the name was gradually fulfilled and so is used up. Blessed be God. Fancy God somebody has written this in an explanation of the name of Jehovah. He who ever was, he who ever is, and he who ever is to come. And everybody says, oh, magnificent. But that means to say that it will never be fulfilled. Instead of saying, ever is to come, say, thank God there came a time when they stopped and said, he who was and is and he is come, the time has come for him to sit upon the throne. And the name Jehovah is now beginning to be completely fulfilled. <clears throat> well, now you remember, this element of time is used uh, in the epistle to the Hebrews concerning Christ. In the 13th chapter, you must get all these passages before you, although you may know them from memory. We read in these words. Verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever, or unto the age. Here's the explanation again of the meaning of Jehovah. He was, and is, and is to come. And then if you remember, this is balancing the first chapter, that makes it even more emphatic. He's the same. Chapter 1, verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, Wouldn't you think that anybody who read that would say, well, that must be God. And they've got chapter and verse. If you look at chapter 3, verse 4, For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Says so. And it says, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. It begins on that note, thou art the same. And in the 13th chapter it says, thou art the same. Now these are challenging thoughts. We'll have to devote an evening to the question of creation and its relationship to God who limited himself. But here's a hint already But we have other things to say, and I think we must watch our time. When you think of the word, I am, as I say, there's something almost inexplicable about it. So, we're going to look at the Gospel according to John, and we shall be looking at John for the rest of the study, I think. So, we'll come to this statement that our Lord made, and look at it a little bit closely. I'll just, you keep chapter 8 with you, and I'm going to quote from the first verses of John's Gospel in the first chapter. You keep the 8th chapter so that we can turn back to it. You'll notice, in the beginning was, and the word was, twice over. The same was in the beginning, the same was. Now it changes. All things came into being. That word made is not the ordinary word to make. It's the word that gives generation. Genesis. To come into being. All things came into being. And without him was not one thing that came into being that did come into being. That's not good English of course but that's stressing the fact that there is put over against one another in the Greek language the word to be and the word to become. Of God it says he is. Of all things else, they become. They come into being. They have a commencement. They have an end, but not God. Well, now those words are used in John the 8th chapter, verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham came into being, I am. You see, in our version, was and am are both parts of the same verb. I am, he was. But it isn't true. It would have been robbed. One says, Abraham came into being. He was one of the things that were made. But now Jesus Christ says, I am, and that's breaking all rules of grammar. If anybody else could say that, in limits, he'd say, before Abraham was, I was. Well, that would be a tremendous thing to say, wouldn't it? A man not 50 years old standing up before people and saying, before Abraham was, I was, but he didn't say that. He said, before Abraham came into being, I am. But what are we going to do about it? We can't alter the scriptures, it's so written. There's not the slightest possibility there's a mistake. Well, it's only revealing something which is almost beyond the limitations of human language to express. But it shows you the wonder of this person who is standing there. Now you do know, don't you, in the Old Testament there are what are called the Jehovah titles. The Jehovah titles. That is to say God has associated with the word Jehovah a certain number of different attributes and when we come to the Gospel of John you'll find he's done much the same. So I want to be sure that we give these a consideration. I don't think I'll turn you to the passages. I'll give them to you. It makes such a commotion, turning from passage to passage when I'm only dealing with a word uh, that uh, I think you'll you'll know them and I'll remind you of them and if you like to take a note of them, so much the better. Genesis 22 gives us the first Jehovah title and it is first in the right sense. Did I say that redemption or creation was intimately associated with Jehovah? Redemption. The God of redemption. Well, on the mountain where that transaction took place, and exposed something of the heart of God, when the heavens stayed the hand of Abraham and said, Now I know thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine only son from me. I've told you before that in Romans 8, that same word is repeated when it says, He who spared not his own son. Same word used of God as used of Abraham. There we have a Jehovah title. Abraham said, in this place the Lord will provide. Jehovah, Jireh. In this place, on this mountain, the Lord will provide. Now where was that place? One of the mountains of Moriah. Where was the place called Moriah? The place where Jerusalem was built and our Saviour was crucified on a hill just outside the walls of Jerusalem, do you believe it got so near to it and then missed its place? Isn't it absolutely certain that the very self-same evidence that Abraham took his son and he said, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, the Lord will provide, in the mount of the Lord it was seen when this greater son of Abraham was actually offered and not spared. Jehovah Jireh. So you see, these Jehovah titles are taking the word Jehovah and saying, you see what it means? It means the one that provides the sacrifice without which salvation is impossible. Then in Exodus 15, 26, we have Jehovah Rofika, I am the Lord that healeth thee. And you will remember that the healing was particularly associated with his ministry to Israel. His miracles from the beginning to the end were mainly miracles of healing the body. And he was fulfilling a passage referred to him in Isaiah 53. He bare not only our sins, said Isaiah, but our sicknesses. So there we have the Lord, our healer. Then in Exodus 17, we have the coming of Amalek, who laid his hand, as it were, in revolt on the throne of God. And God said he would have war with Amalek forever because of his attitude. Amalek is rather a figure of the attack of the flesh, but that he's using it as a symbol. And there we have a Jehovah title, Jehovah Nisai, the Lord our banner. Under that banner we go out. And you remember in that occasion, Moses went on a mountain And when Moses' hands were lifted up, Joshua succeeded. And when his hands sunk, the enemy succeeded. Our Saviour needs no one to support him on either side in his uh, intercession for us. But it's a lovely thought that on that mountain, two men stood beside him. They arranged stones for Moses to sit on. And one stood one side and one the other and supported his hands until the battle was won. It's a little word for us with regard to our opportunity for intercession one for another. And then we have rather a long word, Jehovah mekadishkan Well, now Kedish is the word holy, and this is I am the Lord that sanctifies thee. So we now have in the Law of Moses four Jehovah titles. We have the Lord who provides a sacrifice, we have the Lord who heals, we have the Lord who triumphs, and we have the Lord that sanctifies. These are all expansions of what Jehovah intends us to understand concerning the outworking of his name. And then we have another one in Jeremiah 23, that Jehovah you, the Lord our righteousness. I always remember in the days of my relative ignorance, because I'm not quite so ignorant as I was, but I know there's a tremendous lot yet, going to a meeting, and they sang, Jehovah, Sid, can you? And I didn't know in the least what they were talking about. But I found out. Of course, that's the best thing, isn't it? And this is the Lord, our righteousness. That's what Christ is. We stand not in the righteousness that belongs to God, God's own personal righteousness, no. We stand in a righteousness wrought out for us by the Son of God and imputed to us by faith. Jehovah, Sid, "Ken you? And then the last and lovely one, Jehovah Rohai, the Lord my shepherd. And then we, that reaches John's Gospel, doesn't it? We get in the tenth chapter of John's Gospel that he claims that for himself. I am the good shepherd. Or well, you say he says a good shepherd. But wasn't he a good shepherd in Psalm 23? He says, I am the good shepherd. Well now, what I want to suggest is this. That in this Gospel according to John, John has embedded that statement in the 8th chapter where the words are left just blank, like that, I am. And if we are honest, we don't quite know what to do with it, do we? But if we were really wonderfully fully taught, we'd say, you know, anyone who can say I am like that, when he owns all things, he possesses all things, he has all power, he has all wisdom, that's everything. But God knows our frailty, so he breaks it down for us. I don't know whether you've ever been given a blank cheque. Well, I send a blank cheque sometimes to a friend, but I trusted him, you know. I wouldn't send it to everybody because Mr. Wharton, he helps me out of one of the most horrible moments of my life, trying to make out what I've got to pay to the income tax man. But he does it all for me. I neither reckon it up nor bother. Whatever he says goes, you see. So I send him the whole caboodle And I put a check in and I leave him to fill in the amount and he sends it off and that's the way I live. See? Well, I believe God says, look, I'll give you a blank check. I am. Now, fill it in. And whatever you ask for according to his will, you'll find that covers it. Now, that's what he's done in John's Gospel. He doesn't merely say, can't you rest in him who is called the I am? Say, it's a difficult thing to know what to do with it. But he says, look, Write down this. John 10. I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep. See? Fill it in like that if you feel the need of a leader and a saviour. Or, remember, in the tenth, in the sixth chapter, where we get the first of them, the most elementary thing we need, both in spiritual and in physical things, is bread. Of course we we boast and think we we are so high and mighty we'd never be sort of degraded enough to allow ourselves to but the scripture says, oh, says if a man gets down there Solomon says, give me neither poverty nor riches he says, because if I am poor I may steal for bread. What was the first temptation Eden put before our saviour himself? Bread. What was the temptation in the wilderness with Israel? Bread. What was the temptation in the garden of Eden? Something to eat. Oh yes. And our Saviour says, here's a blank check, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. I am the bread of life. Or again he says in the eighth chapter and the ninth chapter of this John's Gospel twice, the eighth chapter, verse twelve. We've looked at it, of course, read it. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again in the ninth chapter, verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he was now dealing with a man born blind. Light. Bread. Shepherd. I've gone out of order, of course. But in the tenth chapter he says something else about himself. In the 10th chapter, verse 7 and verse 9, I am the door. Well, in what way was he a door? Well, of course, we learn a lot by knowing the circumstances when any word of the Bible is pronounced and (coughs) I've never kept sheep. But I do know this, that in the Palestine sheepfolds there's a sort of embracing wall but there's no actual door on hinges with a lock and a catch and I do remember a visitor in the earlier days than this when Palestine was still more primitive and the man was speaking to the shepherd and he said you put your sheep in there he says but uh, where's the door? Do you know it's recorded that man without quoting scripture said to him oh I am the door he slept there in that opening and no enemy, no robber, could get to those sheep that, that part over his body. That's what our Savior said. Because you look, when He's told them about the sheep and the door, they did say they didn't understand. Verse six: This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not. But why didn't they understand? Surely you say, if, they, if there was anything they would understand, it's about sheep. Yes, but you see. They were wanting to know why he was talking about sheep. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Well, we said, we know that. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Yes, we know that. But why are you telling us this? Oh, they said, I see. You are, oh, he said, yes you are the shepherd, you are the door. Oh, and he said it all over again to them and then they said at the end of this, um, now, he said, now when you speak plainly, no longer do you speak to us in parables. Well, we come to another statement, we mustn't stop too long because our time is running out. In the 11th chapter of this same gospel, the blank check again, oh what a, what a way to fill this in. Fancy having that check given to you with the words I am on it, and never having read this story, and then standing at the grave of a loved one, dead, buried, tomb sealed, and this one who is called the I am approaches in those very words I am, is life eternal. But he has to say so. And what does he say? They're the most marvellous, majestic words that any mortal man could ever hear from the lips of a man. Standing in a grave, in a graveyard, and saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever is living and believing in me, that is to say, when the time comes, shall never die. Believe is now this? And isn't it wonderful? In this same chapter, the smallest verse in the Bible is almost unbelievable, verse 35. Jesus wept. Would you believe that anyone who could stand in a graveyard and say, I am the resurrection and the life, would weep? That's because we don't know the heart and nature of God. This one is demonstrating to us as a little bit of the being and nature of God. And he's not like a sphinx with stony eyes staring out into eternity that no one can move. He's not the sort of heaven of brass that over speaks and says, you might as well hold your breath for prayer makes no odds to him. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on and all thy piety and all prayers shall not call it back or cancel half a line. That's what one man said. But this book says, the God of risen life stooped to the human misery of Mary and Martha and wept. That's the God that's in the Bible, friends. A God that's walked in human shape. A God that has suffered as we can only imagine. A God that is not without sympathy for his past, his past. The only God we could appreciate is one who is in, in measure expressed to us with some human terms. Not a God afar off, but a God intimately near. And then of course there are two others. In the 14th chapter, speaking now to his own, he said to them in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, love has to be very severe. He didn't hide the fact that there was only one way to the Father. It was most necessary, he should say so. And it's necessary for us to say so. It doesn't matter because a person says, well, as far as I can see, As long as I am kind to others and pay 20 shillings in the pound, you see, that's not the way back to God, friends. No, no. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, of course, that's a fine text to give to the preacher who says, now, firstly, my dear friends, he's the way, and secondly, he's the truth, and thirdly, he's the life. Well, that's all true. But that isn't what it says here. What it says here is this. I am the true and living way. And you'll get the same figure in Hebrews 10 when it says we draw near by a new and living way. In one it says a new and living way, another it says a true and living way. True in contrast to all the shadows and types that have gone before. And then the last, he says in the 15th chapter Verse 1, I am the true vine, my father is the husband. And verse 5, I am the true vine, ye are the branches. And there he's is emphasising not salvation, but the things that accompany salvation, that is the production of fruit. Well, what I've attempted to do is to show you that the I am of Exodus is divided up into small portions for us, and we are not limited to these seven or eight statements. In more than one passage it says, now in this eighth chapter, uh, we read in the uh, 24th verse, these words, Therefore I to you, you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, but you notice the word he is in italics, Just the same words, if you believe not that I am, there's nobody else can save you. I am the bread, I am the sheep, I am the shepherd. If you believe not that I am, where will you go? No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. And again, in um, the uh, 28th verse, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am? No word he there. I am. Just left like that. And so I think we do well to ponder this fact that God, for the purpose of creation and for the purpose of redemption, has purposely and willingly limited himself to time and space for our sake. And even though we cannot prove all things and penetrate all things there comes a moment when we say I can't withhold it any longer. This book says you cannot honour the Father if you withhold honour from the Son. So let us remember that it is the only possible contact we can have with God, as God is the mediation of Christ. And if you ask the question as we do what is God like? God has only one answer. God is Christ-like. And if that doesn't suffice us, I don't think anything will. So may the Lord give us grace as we pursue these studies to get at least some idea of the wonderful grace of God manifested in the person of our Saviour.